Well, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. And as you know, we continue to work through uh, God's Word. We are presently in Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 28. And um, Chris is going to come and read for us um, our passage for this morning. Acts 21, 18 through uh, 26. Did I say 28 earlier? Okay, it's 18 through 26. Let's stand together and read God's Word. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands were among the Jews of those who had believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Uh, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men uh, who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may have their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Lord, we come to you now asking for your help. Lord, you desire to do a work in us today. And Lord, we want to be humble before you. We want to be humble, Lord, and teachable and guided by your truth. Lord, we want for you to shape us and mold us, Lord, to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, what we, what we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And Lord, what we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, allow me, as uh, your messenger this morning, Lord, to be faithful to your truth. And Lord, that your people would be strengthened and built up because of our time together this morning. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by asking a very simple question. And it's a question maybe... You'd say, why are we even asking this? But it is an important question in light of our passage. And it is this question. Does missions matter? Is investing time, money, energy, spiritual sweat in a missionary endeavor, is it really worth it? Is missions something that matters to you? Or is it just something that you know that other people do? In my first pastorate, I was shocked to find out that uh, a number of my church leaders were actually opposed to missions, very reluctant to participate in missions. Certainly they would say, yeah, let's send some money to support someone, but anything more than that, uh, it was always 
stubborn resistance. And it was surprising to me. Because to me, missions is, is just what a church does. It's part of the portfolio of the responsibilities that God has given the church. And yet, these were two men in leadership at the church that basically said, our time and our efforts should be for our own flock. And they saw missions as a distraction. And certainly, there's a need for balance in ministry. But to neglect missions, in my consideration, is an awful thing. Now, of course, my upbringing is such that I grew up in a number of places around the world. You guys know that. I had the privilege of living in Israel and in Germany and in England and then in Michigan. And so needless to say, wherever my family was, my parents would be involved in missionary endeavors, helping missionaries, attending church where missionaries were leading and guiding. And so I had the privilege of, of experiencing different cultures and seeing missions firsthand. And then add to that, when I came to faith in Christ, my pastor, Paul Vanneman, literally gave his life for the church being more deeply involved in missions. He was very passionate about missions, in particular, the support and the, the help of national pastors. And so he would take younger pastors um, to the mission field to show them the mission field because back then, this is the 80s and before that, um, churches kind of boasted about, oh, we have all these different missionaries, but they might support them like 25 bucks a month, which is not really that much when you think about it. But we've got missionaries all over the world. It was great to see this missionary map with all the different places, but they never went. They didn't go. They didn't connect. And so as a church, you're like, yeah, I know we have a missionary we support somewhere, but we don't know who they are. We don't know what their kids' names are. We've never visited and his passion was to say that needs to stop and the church needs to go. And so he literally took some young pastors with him to Costa Rica and, and to visit a variety of places. And while they were taking some time for rest and relaxation, he went out swimming in the ocean. He ended up drowning. Um, and literally, just you know, passionate about missions was the, the, the way in which he died. And of course, as we come to the book of Acts, we can say that this is a manual for missions, isn't it? We, we look at how the Word of God is spreading through these different cultures and different places, and we see that this was a priority, obviously, because the goal was to take the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ was sending from heaven through the apostles, uh, th through the preaching of the Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to the end of the earth. This is all mission. And it's because then of my personal upbringing, my pastoral legacy that I experienced, and the Scripture's clarity that I determined that wherever God took me, and whatever church God would have me serve in, that missions would be a priority. And I hope that you feel that here at Gateway. I hope you're not tired of hearing about Bolivia and Ukraine. I hope you rejoice in the fact that God has given us opportunities to serve and partner in places that are making a difference. Now, we're doing this not because we want to boast about ourselves, but because we believe that we have a mission's responsibility to help the missionaries financially, to love and care for their families, to serve them in training their people, to build these lifelong relationships with them that will continue through the years. And we take that very seriously. And as we've journeyed our way through the book of Acts, we've been exposed to the heart of the Apostle Paul. And just maybe over the past couple of chapters, I want you to note that in chapter 20, we saw 
Paul's shepherding heart. You remember that? He demonstrated that by his life and his legacy that he leaves uh, the church in the city uh, of Ephesus that he administered to. And then last week as Dennis preached, Luke shows us Paul's humble heart. He's willing to humble himself to the, the will of God, even if that meant his death. And then today, Acts 21, 18 through 26, Luke will show us Paul's missionary heart, demonstrated by his willingness to make adjustments for the sake of gospel ministry. And so this morning, I would like to present to you this proposition. Luke wants us to be challenged by three characteristics of a missionary heart. Three characteristics. Now, these are not all the characteristics that should be present in a missionary heart, but these are the ones that come out of this text. And these are really helpful for us today. And he wants us to be asking the question, is this a reflection of my heart? Do I have a missionary heart? What might I need to change so that my heart has a missionary focus? So let's begin this morning by the first characteristic. A missionary heart rejoices in gospel fruit. I mean, it just rejoices when it hears about the gospel going forward and people truly getting saved. Notice what it says, verses 18 through the first part of verse 20. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. The first thing he rejoices in is the conversion among the Gentiles, right? He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. Now, it's, it's important for us to note here that it has been about 25 years since Paul was ushered forward by Barnabas to the Jerusalem church. And so there's a lot that has taken place. And this one-by-one story of Paul's missionary journey among the Gentiles would have taken a long time. And he would likely have talked about some consistent things, where he went, where he went on his first missionary journey with Barnabas in the region of Asia, how he would have shared uh, how God directed him toward Macedonia on that second missionary journey. And he would have talked uh, about his time in Athens and in Corinth and in Ephesus. Secondly, he would have talked about the strategy he used going into the synagogues and preaching there and seeing the fruit of that uh, uh, bearing out into the cities. He would have talked about the opposition that he had faced, the beatings, the imprisonments, the mobs. He would have talked about the reception and the growth of the churches, the training and raising up of men and women, and men in particular to be elders, and how the churches were, were not only growing, but they were, they were growing by themselves without his help, and they were doing ministry, and they were a testimony around the regions. Wonderful stories of God's work. A lot of it what we've seen recorded by Luke in his book. This would have been a wonderful time of sharing questions, seeing God's providence and the power of God on display. We got, a, we got a little taste of that this morning, didn't we? When you hear God's work of providence in the life of individuals, 
and, and Paul may have shared specific stories, but he probably also shared the bigger stories of interactions with particular churches. And make no mistake, though, Paul was not boasting about Gentile conversions for himself. He reported what happened, but notice, he rooted it all in God. It says, these are the things that God had done among the Gentiles, right? Paul recognized that he was simply an instrument in God's hands and that the success of the missionary endeavor was not really about Paul, but about God's work through a weak vessel. To that end, Paul, James, and the rest of the elders in Jerusalem all glorified God. It would have been a wonderful time of fellowship if we had been there. And we would have been rejoicing together too. And friends, it's a reminder to us that in our pursuit of missions, we need to work for God, not our own reputations. You remember last, was it last week, we showed the video of Ukraine? If you were here last week, it's all about Roman and our partner there in ministry and what's happening there in Ukraine and how God was using him there. And there was another American pastor that was interviewed that was making commentary. And I thought to myself, you know, I could get a little bit kind of jealous to say, well, how come, how come Gateway isn't being featured here? It doesn't matter. The point is that God is at work and, and our partnership continues and he has other people that are coming alongside him. But you see how these sinful things can creep in. It's all about what God is doing. We're vessels that God uses to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, when we see gospel fruit taking place around the world we, that we haven't been a part of, we should be rejoicing. God uses us to be sure, but he uses other people to accomplish his purposes in other places. I had to learn this as a, as a young pastor. I remember being in a missions conference, talking to a national pastor from Argentina and there were at that time places that were closed to American missionaries, in particular areas in, in the Middle East, because of the war conflicts that were happening and the politics and that kind of stuff. And, and he was just talking about how wonderful it was that from, from his churches, there were people going uh, to be missionaries to places there in the Middle East, places that we couldn't go. And there was part of me that was upset. Why? We in America should be the ones that are doing this, right? And it was, it was like God was working on my heart to, to kind of drift away from this idea that we in the USA are the ones that are doing missions around the world and to begin to understand a healthier biblical perspective that God is sending missionaries from his church throughout the world to places where the gospel still needs to be proclaimed. And boy, oh, how much we've allowed our church to be national rather than the kingdom of God that is international. And friends, we need to be reminded of that. We are children in the kingdom of God. Yes, we happen to be Americans, but for us, what's more important is our citizenship in heaven. All right? And so it's just a good reminder for us. So there's this conversion among the Gentiles that is the gospel fruit. Secondly, there's the contribution from the Gentiles. And you're like, what's going on there? That's not in the text, and you're exactly right. There's nothing in the text that explicitly states there's a contribution that is coming from Paul uh, to the, the Jerusalem church, except for the fact that Paul says, 
where it says that Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. And one of the things that God had done among the Gentiles is that they had responded to the call of the Jews or the, the Christian Jews in Jerusalem who were in poverty, and they had taken up collections and given them to Paul. And Paul, as part of his journey to Jerusalem, was to come and give those resources to them. So this wasn't the primary message. The primary message was God was bearing gospel fruit among the Gentiles. But the secondary message was, and the Gentile churches hearing of their struggle and having taken a collection for the church in Jerusalem, now send it with Paul. And you can look at a number of passages that talk about that. Romans 15, 25 through 26, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But I'll just read for you, uh, just, just to kind of root this down, uh, what we find in Romans 15. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. This is what he's doing, right? For Macedonia, big region, and Achaia, big region, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So as he's coming, he's not only sharing the fruit of conversion, but he's also sharing the joy of the contribution of the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, to the Jerusalem church. There's this wonderful expression by the Gentiles toward the Jews that are in Jerusalem. Can you think of any better way for God's church in distant places to show affection for another church going through hardship than to send resources to help that church through their trial? That's why we do what we do when we take up a collection for what's happening in a particular area. It's the same thing that's going on here. So, and also you have to take into consideration the natural and ongoing, I want to say difficulty and potential conflict between Jews and Gentiles. This is a wonderful demonstration from Gentiles of their love for and embrace of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, really think about it, the mother church that has been the, the source to plant these churches in their Gentile region. What a wonderful demonstration of love. Now, my, my question to you is this. Do you rejoice in gospel fruit? Right? I mean, do you, are, are you thrilled when you hear about genuine conversions? I'm not talking about some of the foolish stuff that's out there, but I'm talking about genuine conversions, how God is at work in different places, in hard places. You know, sometimes in, 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 in the history of the church, my experience has been, uh, you know, as missionaries have sent reports and that kind of stuff, one of the things that they get discouraged about is that, you know, the church in America is expecting, you know, we got 100 people saved this month. Well, that hasn't happened in our church. Why would we expect it from a missionary? but we rejoice over the little movements of progress because we're not concerned about faux conversions, or you know what I mean, uh, false conversions. We're concerned about true conversions, and true conversions often take time and effort. Do we rejoice in that kind of gospel fruit? When we watched a video last week of what was going on in Ukraine, yes, there's a humanitarian side of that, but there's also the gospel-centered side of that. Do we re rejoice that even in the context of a war, that God's church can be ministering the gospel and God can use a war to bring someone to Christ. Isn't that amazing? God can take something so awful as the means for something so glorious. 
all right? So a, a, a missionary heart rejoices in gospel fruit. Secondly, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time here, a missionary heart strategizes for gospel advancement. See, Paul, having had time to share God's work among the Gentiles throughout the Mediterranean, now takes a seat. It's his time to sit down and to listen to the report of James and the elders and their particular recommendation to him. And there are four movements to this report. Uh, presumably, we would say, given by James, who's representing the elders. There's a report, there's a problem, there's a solution, and there's a reminder. First of all, there's a glowing report. And the glowing report basically is this. Many thousands of Jews have believed. So just as Paul has communicated the wonderful success of gospel ministry around the Mediterranean to the Gentile people, James and the elders report to him the wonderful multiplication of the gospel among the Jews. Thousands of Jews believe, right? You see, brother, how many thousand there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. They, they love the word. This is wonderful news. And this is wonderful news for Paul, whose greatest opposition so far has been who? Jews, <laughs> all right? They've been opposing the spread of the gospel, and still in Jerusalem, there are those who are coming to faith in Christ and loving now the word afresh. Now, it's all good news, except there's been a growing problem in the church. A divisive rumor about Paul has been spreading among the people. And this is what we have, secondly, a divisive rumor. Unbelieving, I should say believing Jews, are spreading rumors about Paul. Paul, James is saying, Paul, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have been told about you. Now, he hasn't a clue as to what they've been told until James communicates. Now, here's the thing. For whatever reason, it's our sinful hearts. We love a good rumor. We have to fight and parry them away because we actually like to hear them, and it's part of our sinful nature. And it's amazing the kind of false accusations that take place within the body of Christ about others who are faithfully serving the Lord. And we're not talking here about objective truths. We're talking about rumors. I remember when I was in college, um, there was a rumor spreading in the Christian circles that I was a part of that John MacArthur was a compromising heretic. Now, you heard his name mentioned a couple of times here this morning as, as a resource to Shane and Jessica, and we rejoice over that because John MacArthur is a faithful pastor down in the northern L.A. area at Grace Community Church, and our leaders go to the Shepherds Conference um, regularly. Now, what were the accusations? There were three of them. Let me just give them to you briefly. He was accused of speaking at conferences or in churches that did not hold the same theology as our circles at that point in time. The thing is, if you ask him the question, how could you do it? How could you go to maybe, say, a different denomination or a different circle of people and go and speak at a conference? He said, they're asking me to come. I have the truth. They're not putting any restraints on me. They need to hear this. Right, And so he would go in there with that mentality. He wasn't allowing the conference to affect his message. He saw those people many times as unbelieving or weak 
in their faith and needing the truth of the gospel, all right? And so he would do that. Secondly, he was accused of not using the King James Version, which, in my opinion, um, in, in the many circles that we were in, was a cardinal doctrine. It was something that was, you know, if you don't believe in the King James, I don't even know that you're going to get to heaven. I mean, it really, really, really was heavy. He was also accused of denying the blood of Jesus. This was the more serious accusation, um, and it really was a, an unfounded distortion of one statement that he made in his commentary on Hebrews that was really unfounded, and it was unkind, and it was inappropriate. But here's the sad reality. Many within the body of Christ believed the rumors and the accusations. I mean, pastors would preach a sermon on Sunday morning about the heresy of John MacArthur. Who cares about the heresy of John MacArthur? Tell me more about Christ. See, the nature of the, of the church can be where we're just always again it, right? We're, we're always fighting someone as opposed to presenting the one who is Christ. Now, we do that primarily, why? Because it's our nature to be against things, right? Rather than to be for them. We, oh, give us peace, give us unity. People don't want peace. They don't want you. They want what they want. The unity they want is for you to stop doing what they don't like and you to do and accept who they are. Well, that's not unity, right? And not only that, we're not quick to ask good questions for clarification or to to honestly and humbly listen to the responses. You know, if someone had sat down with John MacArthur and said, why do you go to these conferences? And listen to his explanation and say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I was invited to go to a mosque and to preach for half an hour, should I go? Do, 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 do. Well, my friend, Edgar Trabulsi in Lebanon, he welcomed a whole bunch of Muslim families and a community. If you remember, years ago, they were being bombed in some villages across from Israel. He invited all those people to be refugees at their Christian camp. And they invited him, this is like four or five months later, to, to come down to their mosque because of the joy that they had in their relationship and the fellowship. When I say, you know, together as people at the camp, he came and he went into a mosque and he preached the gospel in the mosque. Why? Because you're preaching the truth. You're not, you're not distorting it. You're not dissolving it, all right? So the sad reality, friends, is this is what happens. People love rumors, and they undermine gospel ministry. So what is the rumor spreading among the Jewish believers? We find it in verse 21. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them, not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Essentially, the rumor being circulated among these Jewish Christians was that Paul was teaching apostasy from Moses. In other words, turning away from Moses. You don't want to have anything to do with Moses, right? In particular, being fleshed out with these two statements, right? Not to circumcise their children or walk according to Jewish customs. Now, when we hear that, we should step back and ask ourselves, well, wait a second. Is that what Paul was doing? Is this a true statement? Well, first of all, I want to say this. Here's the truth. Paul did not teach the Jews to turn away from Moses, but what Paul did teach was that the law had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And those are two separate things. 
Jesus spoke of Moses. In fact, Jesus, to the, the men on the road to Emmaus, talked about him being spoken about in the Psalms, Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. I mean, he, he's going back saying the Old Testament scriptures proclaim me the Messiah. That's what Christianity was about. Matthew 5.17 quotes Jesus saying, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Secondly, Paul never taught Jews or Jewish believers to abandon the practice of circumcision or to observe uh, or the observance of, of Mosaic ordinances. What Paul did teach was that it was a matter of Christian liberty, whether you did or whether you did not. In other words, if you were a Jew and you were now a Christian and you just had a baby boy and you wanted him to be circumcised, you had the freedom to do that. And if you were a Jewish Christian and there was going to be some kind of a Jewish festival going on, you had the freedom to participate. The difference is circumcision wasn't salvific. Going through that ceremony wasn't salvific. In fact, neither circumcision nor the observing of feasts ushered you into the kingdom of God. Right? It was a completely different mindset and mentality. Why? Because of the gospel. You see, because these believing Jews were in Christ, these became cultural practices that had no salvific value. They were, technically speaking, adiaphora, things indifferent, neither required nor forbidden. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7.19, Paul speaking, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. In other words, it doesn't matter either way, but keeping the commandments of God. See, what we do have from the life and ministry of Paul the Apostle is the willingness to conform to various sets of cultural standards for the sake of the gospel. For example, he had Timothy circumcised for the sake of the gospel so that they went in among the Jews. It would not be an issue. It wouldn't be an obstacle for gospel presentation. It was painful, but it was the means that he deemed necessary so that the focus could be on the gospel, not on some kind of ceremony. It would appear that Paul, in Acts chapter 18, while on his journey from doing ministry in Corinth to Ephesus, stopped at Cancrea and had his hair cut because he was keeping a vow. And so it's very likely that was a Nazarite vow, which is a Jewish ceremony. So the point here is this, that Paul was not against these things, but these things now were in a different category now that you're in Christ. So the truth is that these accusations that were being thrown at Paul by these Jewish Christians were distortions of the truth that sought to undermine Paul's ministry and were a distraction for the true believers in Jerusalem. On the back of those accusations, however, is the deeper charge that Paul was now actually anti-Semitic. And we see that if we go to the next section in, in Acts, Acts chapter 21, and look at verse 28. This is, this is the accusation. This man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now, these are the unbelieving Jews that are accusing him. He's been accused then of promoting an abandonment of Moses and the teaching of the law, but at its core, Paul is being accused of being 
a racist, right? He's against the people. That's the Jews. He's against the law. That's Moses. He's against this place. That's the temple. But none of that is true. They're accusations, but they are accusations that people rally around. And friends, we need to be careful that we don't allow rumors to divide us. I mean, there are people still today that will talk about John MacArthur being a compromising heretic. I don't understand it, and part of it's that people just won't listen. Really, it's what it is, right? My take, anyway. So, a divisive rumor. We move from the divisive rumor, here it is, to a strategic response, convincing the Jews that this rumor is not true. Verse 22, what then is to be done? What are we going to do? There's this rumor out. What are we going to do? They will certainly hear that you've come. Now, it would appear that James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem had already devised a plan. They'd already anticipated what Paul would need to do when he came to Jerusalem to appease those Jews or Christian Jews who have been caught up with this rumor. So they're thinking ahead. They wanted to welcome Paul, certainly, but they also wanted Paul to be able to demonstrate his his loyalty to his people, the Jews. Again, remind yourself that it's been almost 25 years since Paul first went to Jerusalem, and a lot can happen in 25 years, can't it? A lot of changes can take place. Let me just throw out a bunch of them for us. In the past 25 years, we've had a movement, lots of movements, but a couple of them, promise keepers, the emergent church, they, they rose up and they died down, right? We've seen a renewed emphasis and appreciation for um, a reformed gospel and a commitment to expositional preaching. We've had musical groups like Hillsong and Jesus Culture coming from the uh, new apostolic kind of uh, movement that have been promoting uh, things about Christ and Christianity that really are false and undermine true Christianity. We've had Rick Warren's 40 Days of Purpose and other kind of church marketing strategy uh, promoted in the church. We've had to be discerning to endure books such as The Da Vinci Code or Jesus Calling or The Shack that have blown through Christian culture with poisonous and distorted claims about the nature of God and the teachings of Scripture. Those things will always be there, friends. There'll always be that kind of stuff that's blowing in and out of Christian culture. Recently, we've had the resurgence of tension over racism, the introduction and the embrace of wokeism and critical race theory and all the issues surrounding COVID, masking and vaccines and all that kind of stuff. And that's just a short list of things that have happened in 25 years. You've been gone for 25 years and now you're coming back and you're trying to figure out what's going on. It's, it's a difficult thing. I mentioned earlier my friend from Lebanon, Edgar Trabulsi, and I remember one time when I was in Michigan picking him up from the airport and knowing that he'd been gone for like four years from that region and the churches in that region, we began to talk and he was like, brother, tell me what's going on uh, because he didn't want to kind of step on any ministry minefields, right? And so on the way back from the airport, I start going through some things and I say, hey, Edgar, uh, here in the following churches, make sure you're using the King James Version because if you don't, they'll, they'll have a canary fit. Okay, I just want you to be mindful of that. Secondly, don't mention or quote from John MacArthur. They still think he's a heretic, that he denies the blood. Also, um, if your eschatology is not pre-mill, pre don't even mention it from the pulpit. 
People will not understand what you're talking about. They will think that you've gone off the deep end. Whatever you do, don't mention that you affirm the doctrines of grace or that you're a Calvinist. They won't understand what you're talking about and will likely think that there is something wonky about your, your theology. And by the way, ex-church is a split from Y-church, and the pastors and the people are not in fellowship right now. And uh, Z-church has a new pastor, and he is far more conservative than the pastor that was there before, so just be ready for that. And finally, you may not be aware of this, but there's a book out right now that is all the rage, and it's called The Prayer of Jabez, claiming that if you simply pray this prayer every day, you will receive God's blessing. Avoid it. Be aware. Have fun. I mean, can you imagine picking Paul up from the airport and giving him this laundry list of things that have been happening? All right, so let's just get the sense of, of what's happening. Paul's coming back to Jerusalem, and there are these rumors. That this is how Paul has been with the, the Christian Jews among the Gentiles, and he doesn't, he's telling them to abandon Moses and to stop circumcision and all that kind of stuff, right? All false things. Now, it would appear that James and the elders had already just laid out the, 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 the plan for him to come. Notice verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you, right? They're like, okay, you're coming into this, this context you're not aware of. We are, we see what's happening, and we want you to do some things here. We have four men who are under a vow, they're already under a vow, Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now the plan then was simple. Take these four men, go along with them, be purified along with them, pay their expenses. Now here's full disclosure for you. In studying out this text, um, there are a number of, what we say, like-minded biblical scholars, people, names that you would know who actually disagree on what's going on here. And so there's two basic views, uh, two basic camps, you might want to say. Camp number one says that Paul is at his worst here, and he, he compromises himself um, in this passage. They say that Paul should have listened to the advice that his friends and disciples gave him in the previous section where they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Right, it says in chapter 21, verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and th through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And also, he should have paid attention to the prophecy of God through Agabus. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And as a result, they say, Paul has compromised himself even to the point that he is now willing to go through a compromising Jewish ceremony. I don't agree with that. Because it seems to me that the way the text unfolds and the way it's presented doesn't paint Paul in a negative light at all. In fact, if you remember what Paul says at the end of the last section, which Dennis preached on, Paul was very Christ-like in saying, I am going to Jerusalem even if it means my death, right? He set his face toward Jerusalem. It's interesting over these last few 
chapters how much Paul is doing things that reflect Christ. The other camp says Paul is at his best here and he's practicing what he preaches. He had written to the Corinthian church saying the following. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. should be up on the screen. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So he was willing to adjust his gospel strategy for the sake of gospel witness, is what he's saying, right? But then we get to verse 22, and we begin to come to the familiar portion of this. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Now, friends, Paul isn't willing to do anything that is going to undermine the gospel message. But he is willing to adjust his ministry strategy by following the culture and the practices of the places where God takes him. Paul is not saying here in 1 Corinthians 9.19 that in order to reach sinful people, I need to take on those people's sinful practices. Right? Using the extreme example you don't become a prostitute in order to reach prostitutes. Right? We all understand the foolishness of that. But let's put it a little bit differently. You don't engage in sin in order to try to reach people who are in bondage to that sin. But you do seek to act and behave in a way that demonstrates that you love and care about them and their culture or their context. What Paul is speaking to is the freedom to conform to cultural practices that are irrelevant or indifferent to the gospel, that are neither required nor forbidden. They may not be what you are comfortable doing, but there are things that you conform to for the sake of gospel ministry. So, for example, if you are an American woman ministering in a Muslim country, you might want to think about what you wear. It might mean that you would offend people by wearing your Western clothing and actually, you might have to wear a hijab simply for the sake of gospel ministry. If you're serving in an Asian, an Asian context, you learn to take your shoes off before entering someone's residence. Here in California, we do that somewhat anyway. We understand that. Or you're patient to show respect for, for those who are elders. If you're in France or in a Middle, Middle Eastern countries, you learn to greet people with a threefold kiss, Right? Or if you're in some countries, it's a two-fold kiss. You've got to know what's happening in that country because you don't want to do the third one. And they're like, ah, what's going on with you, right? You want, you want to adjust to the culture. You seek to learn those things because you don't want those cultural things to be a means of offense so that you can't even have the platform to speak the gospel. If you're in a Russian church, you're careful not to put your Bible on the floor or apparently to show the bottom of your shoes. But you do these things to adjust to the culture that you're trying to reach. 
that you don't water down or compromise the gospel. See, Paul is putting others above himself. He's putting his comforts, um, he's sacrificing his comforts for the sake of others, but never in a way that undermines or distorts the gospel. One of the things we need to remember here as we consider this passage is that Paul loved his Jewish countrymen. Let me remind you of Romans 9, verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, his Jewish brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul is willing to fulfill James and the elders' requests to show the Jews that he didn't object to Jewish converts following Jewish customs as long as the gospel wasn't compromised and the customs were not required of the Gentiles. Now, specifically, what is going on here? What is the, what is the ceremony that he's being asked to perform? Well, it's, it's likely a Nazarite purification ceremony. What we see here is Paul willing to undergo some purification rituals to appease those Jewish consciences. And what we see here is Paul's humility, his gospel centrality, and his desire for unity. He could have said, I am free under Christ to do what I want. Oh, people love that, right? He could have said, if people don't like it, then that's their problem. He could have said, haters will always hate. But he submitted to James and the elders of the Jerusalem church in hopes of unifying the church and advancing the gospel. He was being faithful to live out those famous words to those, uh, I'll be all things to all men so that I can win them. Friends, we should learn from Paul here. He's willing to do anything for the sake of the gospel as long as it doesn't compromise the gospel. Paul offers a powerful picture here of exercising Christian liberty in this passage, showing us what spiritual maturity looks like. I'm sure that he would even eat menudo if it meant that it gave him a platform to share the gospel. That's kind of a, a gateway joke, so just kind of get in there, right? Now, friends, Christian liberty is often misunderstood. Christian liberty is, is often, you know, young people, they love Christian liberty. Ah, Christian liberty is great. But Christian liberty isn't the freedom to do what I want to do. Christian liberty is the freedom to not do what I have the freedom to do for the sake of others that I'm trying to reach with the gospel or for the sake of another brother or sister in Christ that might have some struggle in that particular area, I'm not going to go in barreling saying, well, I have the freedom to do it. No, you say, that person is more important than my desire and my freedoms. Now, here's the principle for us this morning. When you're outside of your immediate context, you may find it necessary to learn to adapt to the ways of another group for the sake of gospel advancement. But never compromise the gospel and never participate in sin when you're attempting to reach people. But don't convey the impression that everyone must first be like you before they can take your invitation to accept Christ seriously. And friends, we in the American church have often been guilty of violating that. Oftentimes, when we promote the gospel, we are also promoting our view of American life. 
And that's why, why would you end up somewhere in the middle of Africa and there's a choir and they're wearing robes? Why? It's because there are American missionaries that came over and said, oh, you have a choir, you should wear robes. What do you... See, we bring our American mentality. It's like that's, we bring the gospel. And that's what's important. The other things are peripheral. The fourth area here, going report, a divisive rumor, a strategic response, and finally here, a clarifying reminder. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but, but, but James simply reiterates what he and Paul and the elders in Jerusalem agreed on in chapter 15, that the, 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 the Gentiles were not under the Mosaic law, but they were required um, to, uh, to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. In other words, all those who are regenerate people should pursue holiness by walking in God's ways. So the Gentiles are converted. They don't have to submit to the, to, to the Old Testament thinking of, of Judaism, but they are required to walk in the ways of holiness pursuing Christ. And so he's just reminding Paul in, in this whole uh, explanation of what they think needs to happen here of the, the bigger picture here. The focus in our passage, though, is not so much the Gentiles as it is the Jews and what they are experiencing and their view of what's taking place. So a missionary heart here strategizes for gospel advancement. It doesn't demand freedom in Christ when such freedom will hinder the gospel advancement. It's a, it's a heart that is humble, centered on the gospel, and desiring unity within the body of Christ. So a missionary heart rejoices in gospel fruit. It strategizes for gospel advancement. And third, it lives for gospel unity. All up until this point, this has been James speaking on behalf of the elders. Now all we see is Paul saying, you know what, you're right. This is what needs to happen. And he humbles himself and he submits to their instruction and he purifies himself along with these men and he paid the expenses for the cleansing process. Apparently, this was, this was actually a pretty expensive um, ceremony, and it required um, a considerable amount of money. So by doing that, he was demonstrating to the Jewish leaders, to the Jewish Christians, and even to the, to the Gentile believers, his respect for his Jewish culture as well as the leadership in that church. Paul acts here with cultural sensitivity to the Jewish context he now finds himself in without compromising the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Is that how you function? When you're, you're looking around your neighborhood and you see people from all different kind of context, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about Bay Area. It's not, it's not like cookie cutter. We're all the same kind of people. There's different kinds of people. Do, do we, do we, are we willing to, to have that kind of a adjustment and thinking in our heart to say, there are maybe things that they do or they practice that I don't like, that I wouldn't do, but those things are unimportant. What's more important is the gospel. And so I'm, I'm not going to make issues out of things that maybe are simply cultural because I want to I have an opportunity to, to have a conversation. I want to be able to talk. Or maybe there, there are people who have a, a different political stance. And it's like, why are we getting off on politics? I don't want to talk politics. I want to talk Christ. I want to talk gospel. You see, we have a tendency to get, get sucked away by our preferences 
rather than being fashioned and trained in our thinking to strategize for gospel advancement and ultimately providing gospel unity. See, the bigger picture that Paul was always concerned about was the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's the whole point of the book of Romans, is to tell the Roman church, guess what? You're not less in the kingdom of God. You have become one people together. Throughout the book of Romans, in particular chapter 15, you just hear Gentiles and nations. He's, he's crescendoing, saying, look, you are together with the Jews, one people under Christ. And friends, as we look at the Christian landscape around us, we understand that there are certain unique things that we are committed to as a church, and we, we need to be committed to them, we need to preach them, we need to hold them, but we don't need to look at other churches and other people that go to those churches and say, well, you know, you go to such and such church. You know what? That's where they're at. And if you have an opportunity to talk with them about theology or about the gospel, then do that. But be careful that you're not being condescending, that you're looking down on them, that you, you're feeling superior to them or you're somehow condemning them. Everyone's on a journey. And you might be the person that can speak truth. Don't, don't violate that opportunity by, by being unkind or being uh, kind of obnoxious or superior in those relationships. Seek to model a love for the gospel, a love for the word, a love for sound doctrine and the church, while at the same time humbly pointing to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So, a missionary heart rejoices in gospel fruit, strategizes for gospel advancement, lives for gospel unity. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Paul's given us this wonderful model. But I want to tell you something as we bring things to a close. The greatest missionary that ever set foot on this earth is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He willingly left the comforts of his home in heaven to come and dwell with us on this sin-cursed earth. He took on the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He was circumcised. He grew up learning and loving the law of the Lord and observing all the Jewish feasts and celebrations. He loved his own Jewish people. He wept over the hardness of hearts that he found in Jerusalem. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom to all who came to listen. He cared for those who were suffering physically, the sick, the blind, the lame, the demon-possessed. He, he came to give release to those who were suffering spiritually, which is, was his priority. He identified with mankind, knowing what it meant to be tempted, yet he himself never sinned. He knew what it meant to hunger and thirst, to experience loss, and to weep for his friends. See, he was a missionary. He didn't just come. He came with a purpose. And that purpose was to bring a gospel. The difference was he was the gospel. And he was proclaiming the gospel about himself. And he gives his life for his missionary endeavor to usher you and me into that kingdom. He rejoiced 
in gospel fruit. He strategized for gospel advancement. He lived and died for the sake of gospel unity. And he calls us to do the same, to follow his example, to follow the example of Paul, to follow the example of faithful saints through the ages. Friends, do you have a missionary heart? Lord, help us today as we consider the way in which you are stirring us up this morning. There's a lot of things we can say about the Apostle Paul. He was a faithful preacher. He was a faithful evangelist. He had a shepherd's heart. He was committed to humbly submitting himself to the will of the Father. But Lord, this morning, we see his missionary heart on display. And Lord, it's so easy for us to be consumed with the world and the circles that we are living in because we're a part of that. But Lord, it's sometimes hard for us, or maybe we neglect to, consider how you want us to look outside of ourselves and to see the mission field that you've called us to. Lord, not all of us are going to be going to the mission field, like out of the country and stuff like that. Maybe we don't have much to give financially toward it, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a missionary heart. A missionary heart loves to pray for the advancement of the gospel. It loves to hear about the ways in which you are at work in, in and through your people to spread that gospel. Lord, it, it, it longs for unity for clarity and for growth. Lord, would you allow each individual in here to ask themselves the question, do I have a missionary heart? And then, Lord, for us to ask ourselves as a church, are we a church that has a missionary heart? Are there ways that we can do a better job of loving our friends around the world? of strategizing for gospel advancement, of providing unity where there is disunity? What are we willing to sacrifice that we hold dear or that we're free to do for the sake of gospel ministry going forward? Lord, these are all great questions that you are causing us to think through, and Lord, we thank you for that. But Lord, help us not just to walk away today, but to walk away with, with those questions bouncing in our heart, willing to, to wrestle with them, to, to deal with them, and Lord, to, to allow you to use us as vessels that you're working through for the advancement of your kingdom. But Lord, we step back now and we, we are reminded, Lord, of your wonderful act of coming to this earth as the greatest missionary of all we who are an undeserving people, living in our sin, loving our sin, abandoned to it, enemies of you, and yet you came and you spoke and you lived and you died. And you created, Lord, this wonderful way of, of, of drawing us to yourself through this 
sacrificed once for all on the cross. And Lord, we are in awe of that. But Lord, may we also have hearts that are willing to follow that example. This morning, Lord, as we come together and we celebrate the elements, may we be reminded of what you have done in your body as you lived on this earth and as you proclaimed the gospel, but Lord, also what you did as a missionary to die on that cross, to give your, your, your life as a sacrifice once for all so that we could be united with you through the gospel. What a wonderful thing, Lord. Thank you for your glorious gospel. We ask in your name. Amen.